Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What's well, that time of the week again for another episode of the Gagan Pod? We've had a great time doing this over the last six weeks where there's been no live football. David Wiener with you once again, joined by Michael Bridges and John Aloisi this week. So we've got lots to rip into. Let's get started right away. Bridgie, John, good to see you both again. Um, great to have you back on the pod, John, although I feel like we're watching you nightly, boys, on the trivia. So you're, you're, you're up, up and early again this morning, eating your football fix. Um, to you, John, welcome back to the podcast. Um, Thanks. How, how have you been spending your days and getting through this, this period besides studying for trivia? Yeah, I've been studying big time for trivia, making sure I beat Swartzy and Bridgie. Um, no, I've been, um, actually, it's been quite you know, it's, it's never nice just to, to be stuck at home but uh, you, you try and make the most of it um you know do a bit of exercise uh, study a little bit read a little bit um, but the most important thing is just trying to figure out where football is going to end up especially here in australia you know with, with the, the likes of the a-league and the npl and uh, what's going to happen with clubs and with players in general so you spend a lot of time on the phone talking to different footballing people to f- try and help and find out what's going on. And how are you, Bridgie? Mate, I am very, very well. Even after a defeat last night to John <laughs> on the trivia, he's leading 3-2. Swartz making up the rear with a big fat zero. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm coping well, mate. Like John said, it's all about structure and things like that. Exercise um, and, and interaction with the kids, helping with the whole schooling and um, just trying to stay out the way of the wife. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all try and do that. <laughs> yeah, I call this I call this work. I'm just talking to you guys on on Zoom for an hour, and I lock myself in a room. It's really, Dave, it's really. Dave, dumb. you know you know the board game Cluedo, Dave. Yeah, where you've got to find out where the murder yeah. took place, what room. That's like my wife. Every time I hear I go in another room, I go and jump in another room. Just I, I just hide, man. <laughs> well, you're leaving a pretty obvious trail with your social media posts. You're doing well avoiding her with with all that as well. So well done. Oh, I gotta, I'm going to have to get on social media just to see where Bridgie is during the day, to see what room he's in. <laughs> John, don't do it. Don't do it. Stick to being clean and mean, mate. Don't do it. John, you mentioned um, a lot of time on the phone. It's been actually a really productive time without live football. If you take a glass half full approach to actually have some conversations and from my point of view, be able to do some different work in terms of some, some, some great stories and the, the forum you hosted the other, the other week. Um, has your phone been running hot since that forum? Has there been a lot of conversation? What was the reaction on the coalface to, to that epic show yeah. a few weeks ago? Yeah, my phone has been running hot. I didn't hear from a lot of people for about two years there. And then all of a sudden after that show that I'm getting calls and texts and people involved in football at all levels wanting to know what was happening. And no, it was good. It was good because we were able to discuss, you know, and six ex-teammates that have got a, a pretty good uh, rapport were able to you know just have a conversation and uh, and and have a debate about where the game is at uh, what we feel uh, we need to take it forward uh, we didn't come up with uh, a lot of solutions the other week but uh, we're trying to work through that and um, because we, we need to unite this is this is the time now that uh, like you said we're, we're we're not doing much in terms of there's no games, there's no competitions running. Um, this is a time now that we can actually sit down, discuss and come up with a plan because we all know the A-League was at a crossroads. We all know that we haven't produced the calibre of player that we were producing in the past. Um, we all know that that connect from grassroots to A-League level hasn't been there. Um, so how can we actually make it work now? We've got time. Let's, let's work through it. 
Do you know, it's like we were saying, uh, discussing last week as well, and it's it's a great opportunity to, for, like you said, to hit the reset button and just come up with a, a whole vision and, and plan to see where the game can go. And I think that for, for me, having been here for 10 years and seen the A-League level and seen a little bit of an incline and then obviously a massive decline, um, I think the best season would be the Singiono, um Yeah, or, with the Wanderers. Yeah. Heskey. Yeah, there was a lot of there was uh, Del Piero. There was, a, there was a lot of stuff around the world for that, you know, globally. That was great for Martin, but I've just seen it, you know, steadily decline in things that have gone on, and then work an MPL level now. The biggest problem that I've seen over the last few years with the MPL system is that the federations, each federation, seems to have their own direction and their own agenda. And I think until we all get on that same pyramid and have the same ideas, it's not going to happen or help the, the football in this country until everybody is singing off the same hymn sheet. I agree, Bridgie. And, and this is the, the, the point Swartzy brought up. We've got um, nine different boards that we have to pass things by and, and they all got their own ideas and they all you know, want to, their own sort of power. And um, yes, some states have to be a little bit different than others because of the actual size of some states and territories. So, you know, you have to sort of, um, you know, understand that side. But there should be one governing body, one board. Um, and then in those regional areas, and we sort of say regional areas, you say like uh, Victoria uh, should have uh, place, uh, people on the ground there, but there shouldn't be another board, I don't believe. And, and I, I think way there just becomes smoother since that talk and since you know everyone's been bringing it up i I did a little bit of research so the tennis australia are going to bring that in in june july because they've had the same issues as us they've had uh, tennis queensland tennis victoria tennis new south wales all sort of uh, on different pages what they're going to do tennis australia are going to um, make sure that it's all one they're not going to have tennis victoria anymore the tennis victoria will be people on the ground, say like a, a technical uh, director, operations that will focus on the admin and the competitions, a general manager that will look the, through the national uh, strategy locally in that area. That's something that we could probably do because I don't know how true it is, but they say that it's, we waste about $24 million mm. on having different uh, state federations, different member federations. That's a lot of money. You know, where could that money actually go? It can go back into the game. Oh, hang on, let's start with the do list. Hang on, twenty-four million. What can we, what can we do with that? Uh, <laughs> well, exactly. It, it, yeah, we're not talking about personal things here, mate. You can forget <laughs> about the cards and all that. It was, I think, so long as I can, so long as I can remember um, being involved in the game and listening to all this, this kind of discussion. Unity and pleas for unity has been one of the, the massive things. I feel like that Sunday was a not just a fire start, it was a it was almost a nuclear bomb into it was we don't we might not be able to come up with the solutions now, but we're all saying this together. This is the wake up call we need. And in a way, with the starting eleven coming in almost ten days later, it might have just quite had that that due effect. Yeah, I, I think it has. And, and it's a great uh, idea that the FFA have put together with the starting 11. I'm hearing that they're only going to have certain input in terms of like the, the, the footballing side of things at uh, junior level. Um, I would like it to be a little bit more than that. Uh, you know, off, uh, we're discussing before, Bridgie, about uh, you know, restructuring the league. You know, I, I think that that's, that's something that we could actually immediately change because of the whole situation. And um, I don't know your thoughts on that, Bridgie, but uh, at the moment, the, the A-League is at a little bit of a standstill. You know, how can we improve it? How can we make it better? What, what could we do? You know, we spoke about actually changing it and aligning ourselves, the, the A-League, with uh, the rest of the NPL. Do you think that will work? John, I've said that, said that for the last two years. I mean, I, I remember doing something on the one of the shows we were discussing this um, live on Optus Sunday, yeah. on a Sunday, the Sunday Goal Show, and people were saying, "Oh, you know, you, you've got to compete with the other codes, then, and then you've got to you've got to do this, the sponsorship rights and things." I said, "Well, if you if you if you align it back with all the other leagues, the kids are all playing at the same time. You align yourself with the Asian Champions League. Everything for me flows, and if you want to go and be your own." your own code and you back yourself and you believe in it, you've got to go and take that leap of faith and do it. And the other thing that, that 
brings in then, John, you can bring in promotion and relegation because I still say that there's no accountability when you are playing in the A-League and you are bottom of that ladder and they say you're going to win the wooden spoon at the end of the year. Oh, whoopie do. I was getting relegated from someone in the Premier League three times, or, or twice, sorry. That is a thing that will live with me forever. I hated that. When you finish bottom of the A-League, do, do you really fight for your... That There was no accountability. And it's the biggest thing Emil Heskey said. He, he said the pressure's not on. He had been a marquee player because there's no relegation. This is, yeah. this, this is easy. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree. Because when players end up... Uh, we want players to go overseas and play at the highest level possible. So then they're not used to those pressures that you're talking about. So when they get thrown into that situation, they, they struggle with it. And, uh, you because know, they've never experienced it. Yeah, exactly. And that's so, what we're seeing with COVID at the moment. Nobody around the world has been in this situation before. So nobody's got the answers. It's trial and error. We're trying to work out what works and what doesn't. And that's on a global scale of that. But now we're talking about the A-League. Like you say, it does. I became a lot stronger mentally and physically because I didn't want to go through that situation ever again. And when it did occur in a certain time when we were at Leeds United, a lot, you know, I'd been in that situation before. It was, you were able to share that and say, well, this is what we tried. It didn't work. You've got to try and keep. And I didn't feel as scared and as worried about it in that sense. And like you say, when people find out in the go overseas or the go to teams where they have promotion relegation, that can affect you mentally massively if you've never experienced it before. Yeah. How big a hurdle is it, John? Is, do you think it would be switching to winter? And what's the, is the trade-off, the advantage going to far outweigh um, sort of the, the logistics of uprooting what we've done for the last 15 years? So what I'm hearing now is uh, I'm pretty sure the FFA is still in discussions with Fox Sports uh, with, with their last payment. If, if they do not pay their last payment, the league won't go ahead this year, in this calendar year. Um, if they do, they'll finish it off and it'll probably be behind closed doors. So if it doesn't go ahead, they'll start off in January, February next year. So already you've, you, you've aligned it. it it's, uh, so that, that, that's a big plus. So then you can start to... And I think what we've done... In the past, a lot of A-League clubs have actually, um, you know, created good clubs, good like Melbourne Victory, Sydney FC, Wanderers, you know, there's Melbourne City. There's, there's a number of clubs that have got a good base of members and, and they've done a really good job. But now let's try and bring in the older clubs in terms of that they've got 60, 70-year history behind them. Can we align them with us too? So I would say straight away, maybe adding four more teams that from the old brigade um, that are up to a level. And then, uh, and then you, you, you straight away can create a, a second division in terms of a, a north, a northern and southern uh, zonal area and then and try and create a, a promotion relegation pretty quickly because I think that way there. Now, if we're going to have issues in, in going to a broadcaster, what about taking them something that's completely different to where whatever is happening in Australia? Because AFL have only got one league. Um, you've got uh, NRL have only got one league. Uh, Rugby Union, we, we, we're going with something different. We're going promotion relegation us, straight away. It gives us a niche in the market yes. where people are going to say, whoa, this is a new concept, you know? Yeah, I agree. Like idea. And, and, and I think if you don't want to clash so much with other teams, what about having a mid-winter break? Like, you know, the, a lot of countries do because a lot of the time in June, July, that will be when it's international. So it might be a World Cup, it might be a Euro, it might be. So you can still have that little break in that period. So you start a little bit earlier when AFL, NRL aren't on and you can finish a little bit later. So the eyes are on football. Now, We've aligned ourselves with Asia, Champions League, like you said, Bridgie, FA Cup. Yep. Again, that goes you know, in that sort of calendar year. I think it would work a lot better. The, the other side of that as well, um, it'd be interesting to know your take on this as well, John and, and Dave. The MPL at the moment, we should be playing now. So it's not going ahead, obviously, and they're looking for a date to return and ways to get around it. And I'm, I'm listening to ideas saying, you know, no, no dressing room. Players turn up to the games and they're ready to play the games. We get on the field, we play the games. You do your team talks at either end of the field. You know, you do the social distancing, you play the games. No fans, no canteens open. At the end of the day, we are MPL. We, we, we may not have our full sponsors on board for that season because it's not going to be shown on TV or in the, in the press. So the canteen, there's no revenue there for the, for the clubs. And the supporters, the thing that it's all about, 
on some of the owners and members that won't be able to go to them games. I just don't see how it's physically possible or what is the point in, in doing it. And, and, and the other thing about that, some of the clubs haven't got that revenue from their sponsors now to pay the players to play. Um, it's going to be such a tough one. So the reset button could be that we just, you know, MPL forget it and start in line with the A-League whenever that is or whenever we can come up with a, a solution to it. Because uh, the MPL has got to go ahead at some point. Uh, I just can't see it being feasible this season at all. Which is upsetting because I want to be coaching. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, everyone's upset, Bridgie, and you know, not only yourself, that you want to be coaching. And, uh, you know, we're all missing our football. We're all, yeah. uh, you know, European football, local football. Um, but we're in a good position, if we want to look at positives, that uh, we can actually do something about it and, and try and improve what was already there. But can you imagine you're a guy that's investing all that money to say to the, the club for this season that you've done it and you say, oh, well, listen, we're going to play behind closed doors. You can't actually come. You're not going to get any anything from it this season. I, I, you know, you've got to think about everybody that's involved, not just wanting to get the games on. Yeah, even the players, Bridget, it would be, it'd be awkward that you, you know, you're sort of turning up to a game um, last minute. Then all of a sudden you just have to go out there, warm up. Uh, you're doing your team talk out on the field. It's just, I don't know, it just seems gotcha. strange to me. If the lads want to have, if that's the situation, we might as well go and have a, a kick around in the park and say, lads, just turn up. We'll have a kick around the park. Let's get off. Do you know what I mean? And we might even, <laughs> that was might my last drafting draft a goal kicker like Dave Wiener. That's my last 15 years. Do, do the morning shift, get, get all the Premier League stuff done, and then sprint to the park. Heroically run out, concede a goal within five minutes. Oh, what did I do that for? Well, the interesting one coming out of Manchester United, it's going back to the old days. I, I'd gone from Leeds to. Newcastle, Sunderland, Bristol City. I got to Carlisle and I remember the, the kit man gave us the kit and he said, there you go, mate, that's yours for the week. You'll, you'll, I'll get it back off you for the weekend. You've got to take it away and wash your kit and your boots. I was like, what? What's going on here, man? I said, it's not Sunday League anymore. It was a reality check. I've just been reading that Manchester United players because of what they've been allowed to do to get back um, to training, that they've got to take their own kit home and wash it. That is going to be a massive, massive issue for them and I can't wait to see how the first player that actually dyes their gear the wrong colour, you know, and they put it in the wrong wash. Or shrinks it. And they come out. <laughs> Two cardinal sins I made back in the day. One, you had the kit and you left it at home. Two, even worse, you've got the nets. That's yeah. not a good thing to forget because then there's 30 players who want to kill you, not, not just 11. <laughs> I think what it might be even worse if you've got white socks and they turn pink because you put them in with the colours or something like that. It's nothing worse than turning up with pink socks, is it? Unless you play for Palma or Palermo or one of those. One of those. Hey, yeah. You mentioned, I'd love to just talk about what you just said about playing in front of the empty stadiums and that, that talks a lot to what the whole planet is confused about right now. We've got those sort of short-term and long-term issues we're discussing at home. But in Europe, if you can try to decipher what or predict what they're going to do, um, you're smarter than probably the people deciding because UEFA and FIFA's opinions contradict each other. France is closed. Dutch is closed. The Premier League want to kick off behind closed doors, yet their death rate is... awful to watch. It's going to climb overnight there. Italy. What they've yeah, just released in England, they, they just released the, the number of death tolls that had been in hospitals. They've just released in England the amount that were in, um, in the care homes and obviously yeah. outside of the facilities. It's, it's nearly up to, I think, was the figure 40,000? No, 26,000. 26, 26, oh, 26, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they, they're just about 1,000 off Italy and the Italians have started to slow the rate, whereas uh, it, the, the, uh, in the UK it's still rising so, yeah. or it's still around the same. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, David, it's interesting because we, we, only, we got news um, last week or the, about the Dutch, um, the, the Vigi, if I said it right, but um, they, they cancelled um, a lot of, you know, players and um, and coaches not happy because, you know, there was a team, I think it was Cambuur, that were 11 points in front in the second division mm-hmm. and um, they not getting promoted now. Then you've got Ajax that were in the lead and they're not going to get the championship. In Belgium, it worked out a bit different. Club Bruges uh, got given the championship because they were first. Mm-hmm. In France now, just a couple of days ago in Ligue 1, they're still trying to work out who's going to get given the championship, if anyone, who gets promoted. 
Well, it was um, still there was still about ten teams chasing PSG, so that that's uh, going to be quite a tricky one to work out. Y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only ninety nine points clear. Yeah, I know, I know. And then the the thing is, Bridgie, I don't think that's the issue. The issue is then who gets the the Champions League spots, yes. the Europa oh, League spots. It's a knock on effect. Who gets relegated? Who gets promoted? You know, there's those uh, issues yeah. there. But then you've got um, in Italy where the uh, the president of the federation is saying that he won't sign off on uh, stopping the season. Um, whereas in France, it became it came from higher up. There's no sporting events. It didn't even come from the French Federation. It came from the, the, the top level. Um, I, I can't see them uh, finishing the season. Not, not in Italy, not in Spain. Um, Germany, they're saying that they're already training in smaller groups. They're, they're virtually ready to go. Um, I, I, money is, is, is talking here yeah. and, and not so much the health and welfare of the public or the players. That, that, that's the issue I'm finding. Yeah, one thing that hit me in terms of the consequences reading up on it is even if the Premier League took every precaution on the planet and they isolated the players and, and all those um, aspects, is it worth it for the strain it's going to put on the local NHS at the risk of taking their attention away from what their priorities are, more testing for the players instead of for the public? These are bigger consequences that... I guess whoever makes these decisions needs to think about. Yeah. Well, all the precautions that you can take, Dave, like you were saying, it just takes one or two players or staff members to contract it and get it, and we're back to square one, I believe, because then they're still going to be together when they're training. Mm. We still don't know how far social distancing, you know, like I say, it's just trial and error. I think that it... I want football and sport to return, but it's got to be it's got to be at the best interest of it. My mother worked in the NHS for years, uh, all her life. So I've always been a big advocate of the NHS. I've always been there to support. Frank Lampard had the same thing with his family. They were they were given their services as nurses. And, you know, my mother struggled for many years because it's not great pain, the things I saw her have to do. Uh, and I, I can't imagine what they're going through at this moment in time. So anything that's going to put more strain and more lives at risk, I just think it's absolutely madness. It doesn't matter how much money's at stake or what's going on until we have stopped it or they, they, they're happy for things to resume. It, it can't be done, I don't see. And I, I hate to be the, the negative one here, but it's, it's, the real, it's the reality. So they're saying June was their absolute wish. Can you see that happening John and if not if you had to prioritize finishing this season at any cost for those flow-ons Champions League relegation etc or starting next season which one would you think is the more um, pragmatic approach health wise it'll be start next season Um, but they're not thinking that they're thinking dollars because uh, you know, I read the, in, in the Spanish paper, Marca, the other day, the, the amount that the leagues will lose, and, and they're talking about uh, you know, everyone uh, all together. In England, the Premier League, over a billion um, euro, and then, then it goes down. Then it goes to, to La Liga, which is around seven, 800 million. Um, Serie A, the same. Bundesliga, around the same. Um, so that's their thought process. Their thought process is we can't lose this amount of money because then certain clubs are just going to struggle. And, um, and it's, it's the trickle on effect. It's not even just the premier league clubs. It's the championship. Then it goes to league one, league two, you know, how they're going to come out of this. But if we want to really think about um, the actual crisis that we're in, in terms of, uh, you know, are we going to stop this virus? Uh, we can't play. You, you, you can't you can't take those risks. I, I just find it ridiculous. I find it ridiculous that even here in Australia they're talking about uh, the other codes. Mm. You know, going to certain hubs. It, it's just I know there's a lot of money at stake, but we we have to look at what's the best interest for the world. And that's all right. Is there going to be a, a vaccine? Are we going to be able to stop this virus? Because if we just go back to normal life straight away, and I know that they're taking precautions. It's going to be a long year or a long couple of years. And just to just to end off on this, you both put yourself back in your playing days. I call I'm calling all of us. Anyone that's working at the moment or in industry, I call it like you're on the hamster wheel, just sort of just going around, around, around in circles, waiting. 
for some news about what's going to happen. And as a professional athlete, you can do all the things you can do at home, Bridgie, but how quickly can you actually spool up and be at where you need to be to go and play Premier League football or Serie A football or La Liga football? Well, I mean, it's, it's different over here regarding the pre-seasons because we're a lot longer. But back over there, we would be back in for four to five weeks and it was an intensive, you know, intensive training session getting ready for the first game of the season. But even when you're playing the matches, um, you I still, it took me about three or four full games at competitive level to actually feel like I wasn't blowing out my backside and needing the extra touches and fitness to get the cobwebs out. So pre-season does give you an unbelievable foundation and a base. Now, when you are training in that environment with your teammates and they're alongside you, you're pushing each other. You're able to get the maximum out of each other because you'll see somebody ahead of you and you'll want to beat them in that fitness hit. Or you'll, When you're training by yourself, it's very tough to do that, Dave. I mean, even after football and retirement, to, to self-motivate is hard to, to do that to the level that you need to get to. So the lads are doing it indoors. I mean, the, the luxury is we've got Zoom sessions. The lads can get together. There's, there's um, ways and means that the fitness coaches can analyze and test as well. They don't have to be there. They can test it with, with stuff on, on apps and things like that. But there is still nothing that comes anywhere close to being able to get yourself ready unless you've had a good four or five week hit plus, plus games. Um, if you're wanting to get that intensity level and maximize to the quality that we are used to seeing in the Premier League or around the world, sorry. I think all sports, John, I mean, look at the, the big physical sports in Australia, which are asking their players to turn up in a couple of weeks' time. Football as well. There's also the consequences of, of um, there's going to be more injuries. There's going to be, it's, it's a huge physical burden on the players and possibly mental if you ask them to stay away from their families. Oh. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, it, it, when they're talking about going into a hub, that, that, that's, uh, that's a massive burden because if you have to stay away from your families for, you know, three to six months, how, how hard is that, you know, mentally? Um, so you know, we have to look after the, the, the mental welfare of, of players and, and athletes, and that, that's a big thing as well. Look, when you're playing, Bridget, there's, there's nothing better than playing football. You know, everyone wants to get back to it. So the players will be like, they'll be going, yes, oh, we want it to get back because what players love is structure in their life. They love routine. They love, they love the game day. They love being in an environment where they're with their teammates, um, you know, because they've got that in their nature. That, that, that's, that's what it is, their competitive nature. But you're right, Bridgie. It doesn't matter how hard you work when you're individual, individually training, whether it's uh, on the bike, whether it's going for a run, whether it's doing weights, whether it's doing exercise, nothing can replicate, first of all, the training environment um, because you're twisting, turning, jumping. It's not controlled. It's uncontrolled. Um, and, and then when you go into a game, it, again, it goes another step up. So we're talking about high speed running, which now with, the, you know, with all the data that you get through GPS, High speed running is a massive factor, and this is where a lot of the injuries come. So when you're doing repetitive sprints at a certain level and you're not used to it, your body's not used to it, because you can't replicate that, you're going to get your injuries. And you're talking about hamstring injuries, you're talking about you know, other muscle injuries, plus your muscles might not switch on as well as they were, and they fatigue. And then you're talking about your knee injuries, your ankle injuries. So it ends up being a big risk to all players and, and clubs because they could lose some of their most prized assets for a long period because they're not well prepared for this. And here's one for you, Dave, just to understand. Uh, me and John have been in that environment. You've been in pre-seasons. We've worked throughout seasons. and It's funny. You can always get a gauge of which players are going to come back on that first day of pre-season, either overweight or unfit because they, <laughs> they cannot go away for that four or five or six week period that they get off, six weeks would be an absolute luxury, by the way. 
you know that they are not self-disciplined enough training and working by themselves to come back in peak condition because what they need, they need structure, like John said. They need the player saying, hey, come on, sort yourself out and get on with it. Uh, and, you know, I've seen there was a, the classic example was a guy, um, it was Dunny of Aston Villa or Manchester City, the central defender, Richard Dunn. I was told that yeah. he always used to come back and he, you know, overweight and not, not involved and the lads would have to put it's all their effort in. A thousand Guinnesses uh, right. while he was on holiday. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it, it, so, you know, exactly. So then, everybody is not a professional mindset. So this isn't going to be very interesting to see which players have been able to handle that situation and which would have just sat on the bike and just gone, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. doing it, boss, I'm doing it. But they, you know, they're not really getting the most out of it. And that, they're the people that it would have affected the most that need that regimented, religious, everyday assets to, to get them going. It's going to be Where it's different as well, Bridgie, is that um, different countries have different regulations. So a lot of the countries we're talking about in Europe, they weren't allowed to go to the park and, and go for their, their run. We, we saw the, you know, the, the, the example with the Mourinho, Mourinho, how he got into trouble, yeah. So, you know, so they have to do it at home. Now, certain players live in big houses and they've got, you know, all the gear that they need, like treadmill and, and bikes and, and oh, you know, their gardens and whatever. There's others that live in apartments. So, you know, how do they do it? Here in Australia, the uh, Western Australian uh, government have their rules are a little bit different to the rest of the country. And what the AFL have done is said that um, they said that uh, the Western, the West Coast Eagles and Fremantle Dockers aren't allowed to train as a group yet because they're getting an unfair advantage over the other clubs because they'll be better prepared for the start of the AFL, which is, uh, I can't believe, but that's, that's how much that you can actually improve in a small amount of time, one, two weeks, over the rest. So it's going to be unfair for a lot of teams over in Europe because certain players can train differently. John, with mine and your movement back in the day, mate, in <laughs> we wouldn't have needed a big area, mate. We would have been all right in the apartment block. So I got taught, Bridgie, uh, to stay within the width of the 18. And I mentioned that the other day to Mark Bresciano. He goes, what do you mean? You stayed within the 18. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> that reminds, the best the best training gif I've seen during this isolation was it was a cricket one, and a bloke was bowling a bouncer to himself off the wall, hitting it, then saying one run, jumping on the treadmill, going for a run, then <laughs> <laughs> come back for the next ball. <laughs> I saw that clip. It was fantastic. Uh, uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> It was really, really, really good. Um, guys, let's change the pace a little bit. We've got a bit more time to just have a bit of a walk down memory lane, a bit of reminisce. And um, John, that's something Bridgie and I have been doing for the last couple of weeks and it's been it's been good fun. And I'm just going to kick us off with something that just happened. It's one of those on this days. It happened um, uh, yesterday, Australian time, Wednesday. And it was, it was the 10 years, I can't believe it's 10 years, of Inter Milan knocking out Barcelona in the Champions League. Jose Mourinho's famous, famous um, snatch and grab against that epic Barcelona team. I thought that'd be a nice thing just to have a bit of a, a reminisce about and the impact of that game on on football, I suppose. And particularly, I know your passion for, for both those competitions, John. Um, I'd love to just kick off with your memories of, of, of that game and, and well, the it, impact of Mourinho. Yeah, it was huge because, it, look, Mourinho was obviously at uh, Barcelona um, as an assistant coach to Bobby Robson. So he was... Uh, well regarded and well liked at that time as well at Barcelona, and then uh, he he went off and, uh, and and he's got a different philosophy, of course, to you know what the Barcelona team and the club are all about in terms of the way they play football. So you could say that Mourinho's style of play was anti Barcelona, and um, and that's why it was it was so engaging because of the whole aspect of one team just to have the ball and attack and attack and attack. And the other team actually sit off, and people can say, you know, that that, that uh, you know they just park the bus. Yeah, but it it, it takes um, very good coaching um, to to get your players to believe in what you're doing, and also get them to buy into not touching the ball for ninety odd minutes. <laughs> I say, that's a, 
That would be the biggest one for me. Foss, can we please just get a hold of the ball? No, no, no. Just give it back to them. Get organised. <laughs> because it's hard, Bridgie. Because why did we end up playing the game for? We played the game because we love touching the ball. You love being, you know, involved with play and whatever. So, you know, it takes a lot of discipline to do what they did. And I remember in that period there that it's it sort of... So football goes through cycles that um, whoever's winning... You know, sort of everyone tries to follow that way brand. of playing. Yeah, and that brand of football. And uh, and for a while there, I was a little bit worried that everyone was going to start to copy the way Inter Milan played, um, the old Catanaccio, if you want to say, uh, very defensive-minded. But um, I, I think that Mourinho has done it, but not a lot of clubs have followed suit in terms of playing that way. But it was a massive, massive win for them, massive occasion. But Barcelona, uh, credit to them, stuck to what they believe in. And a few years later, they end up winning Champions League again. You know what you tend to find with that kind of philosophy, John? I saw it a lot when we played in FA Cup ties when I was in at, at lesser clubs against bigger opposition or when, in European games when you had to go away from... Uh, you had to be at home and not concede the away goal. They used to find that a lot when we travelled over to different parts of, of Russia. And, you know, they'd be very, very defensive at home, not allowing that away goal. And then you'd see them come to your place trying to get the goal. And you're like, hang on a minute, this is not the same same team we played. So that was that was a big part when I saw it, when it was up against opposition that you knew were better than you. And the managers had to completely change their psyche. Some got it right and some got it horrendously wrong and were conceded in the first two minutes. And then it's... Or back to, or you know, you're two or three nil down. You're thinking, here we go. We've got to change something up here. So it's, yeah. yeah, it's 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 different ways now, Dave. The, the thing is, Dave, with the the way Mourinho uh, coaches and gets his teams to play, um, you've got less time. And and what I mean by that is that uh, if you're not getting the results, then uh, the media, the supporters, mm. the club actually jump on your back pretty quickly. Uh, and um, and you end up, uh, you know, not having as, as much time as, say, like uh, Jurgen Klopp. So Jurgen Klopp, it took him a, a while to actually start to win. But because of the style of football and because of the, the, the entertaining way of playing, the intensity they play at, the attacking style they play at, don't get me wrong, they're still defensively very strong, but they give them more time usually. And this is where Mourinho now gets a little bit unstuck at clubs when as soon as the results don't go his way, it, no one wants to see his teams play. When results are going his way, then yes, everyone says, oh, it's great. Tactically, he's great. So that, that's the difference in terms of um, the, the different styles. Sometimes um, supporters will be a little bit more patient with teams that play a, a certain brand of football. John, that happened with his takeover at Tottenham when he first came into Spurs. I was very worried yeah. um, because you've gone from watching some very attractive football under Pochettino and you come to Mourinho and the results were fantastic early on and I'm still thinking, hang on a minute, there's going to be a turning point because it's the players are going to start not liking it because they've been used to a bit of a freedom playing with the ball and now he's got them playing on the back foot and like you say, it was as soon as them results didn't start coming, then the questions get asked. Yeah, You get away with that sometimes when you're still trying to have a go and playing nice football, you, I think you get a bit more of a... a a bit more of a lead and a, a license to do that but like you say it's absolutely spot on mate the scrutiny that you come under ASAP from negative football not only from the media the fans they're not, they're not dumb yeah, yeah, the exactly. fans are fans they, they love the game so they know exactly 10 years on Bridgie why is it that that basically is uh, it doesn't seem like it's working anymore is it that that why don't the teams buy into it like that inter-team did that day is it that other teams have gone past is it that the magic has worn off or what do you put it down to I still think there's a need for it in certain times when you're playing teams that are are going to dominate games with the ball and you you know and the players understand that they're not going to be able to, to do that and dominate a game. There's there's a need for it, but it's nothing that I would put in as a, as a structure of a, a team and I'd want to be doing it week to week. But I think what's happened now, Dave, we've seen teams like your Barcelona's, we've seen teams, Jurgen Klopp with Liverpool, the attractive flair football, attacking football, Pep Guardiola's teams. There's nothing better to watch that. And players nowadays, there's so much internet to watch footage. It's it's exciting. It's the big talk. Um, Players want to play that game. As like John says, it's a freedom that we used to do in the park. And don't get us wrong, you've still got your defensive structures with Pep Guardiola and Klopp's and that. It's just a different style. It's not sitting back. It's the high press. 
And again, it's can you win the ball back as quickly as you can? That's the football that I love to watch and love to see. I, I can think all, now, can all teams do that? No, they can't. No. But I mean, it's evolved the game and given it a whole new lease of life. I think the modern day uh, coaching now, you, you talk about RB Leipzig that can actually do both within a game of football. We saw against uh, Tottenham when they had to sit off and soak up a bit of pressure. Now, I don't mean soak it up. But not concede because they were playing away from home. They, they already had their away goal. and They were able to do that. But then when they, they have to take the game to the opposition, Brigitte, they were able to take the game to the opposition. And uh, so they were able to do it because he's, he's actually a modern-day coach that understands certain situations in a game you might John, need to actually drop behind the ball a bit and, and condense that space in behind you. They know exactly what to do in all four moments of the game. Yeah. And that, for me, comes down to the coaches and the coaching staff getting their, their, their style across to the players and understanding in a way that they can take it on, on board like that. I worked under Sam Allardyce at Bolt Wanderers. Fantastic. Because we worked methodically every day in that pre-season on a style. It was defend the ball. And when we win it, we knew exactly what to do. Can we hit Kevin Davies and get around them? Or can we find JJ Koch's feet, right? Now, that was with the ball. That's, that was our dynamics, right? <laughs> Without the ball, it was all about structure and defending and units and blocks and shifting and set plays. We worked on set plays a hell of a lot. Now, I think back then, that was Sam's niche. He was fantastic. People didn't give him enough credit. It was, oh, it's a long ball. No, we, we had things in place. But I always wonder when I look now what we could have done if we worked so much more as well when we had the ball as well in all different moments of the game. We just seemed to work on the set players and the defensive structure so we didn't get hurt. Uh, and I, I, like I say, the game has evolved so much now and I'll, I'll put it down to the coaches that are coming through with unbelievable knowledge of how to get this across information to the players. Spoke to um, Zrilla, David Zrilich, a couple of weeks ago for a, for, a, for a story that we'll do during this time about what it was like at RB Leipzig and the level of intricacy and detail and planning and it sounds just like the most fascinating world of from all the way from Ragnit with the with the philosophy down to you know even the assistants of the 17s and the 19s they need to buy in and review their sessions and the video analysis and it, it's and with um at, uh, what, what's the manager's name the the young manager I've gone blank but he's absolute genius and um, it, it's, it's a really interesting discussion into how that's co- they've become one of the four forerunners in, uh, in European football. But, John, what was the impact? I, I wanted to just ask you before we finish off, because I know you've spent a bit of time in Barcelona and, and studying you know, what goes on in Spain since you finished playing. Um, what was the impact of that uh, elimination on Barcelona? And, and when you spent some time there, did that inform any of the way they evolved and kicked on uh, after that? Um, not really. Uh, again, I think that uh, so Barcelona, it, it's uh, one of those clubs that have stayed pretty strong in terms of their belief about playing football uh, and, and their philosophy on, and, on how they want to play football. The only difference is because it's so volatile in terms of their uh, board and, and, and their, their uh, presidents that they change every four years and, and whatever else, occasionally they can stray away from that. But um, their, their academy and La Masia doesn't. So they're, they're always coaching the same way down their academy. So they're producing the same players to go on to the first team. Now, when I went there, uh, Luis Enrique was the actual uh, manager. And uh, so ex-player understands the culture of the club, understands the difficulties of coaching a club like that. But um, his, he uh, was also coached by Louis van Gaal, um, you know, and obviously Guardiola was coached by uh, Johan Cruyff. So their way of thinking was very similar, except Luis Enrique was probably a little bit more direct, if you want to say, than, uh, than Guardiola was. Guardiola was all about uh, making sure that they were keeping the ball um, because that was their best way of defending. Um, and then eventually when they had to open up teams, they would open them up. Whereas Luis Enrique brought in a little bit uh, as well is that, you know what, if we win the ball back, let's see if we can actually hurt teams quickly on the counter because we've got pace up front. Um, and, um, but he was still big on keeping possession. He's still big on you know, making sure that they control the game with the, uh, the ball. Um, but that didn't change. It, it hasn't changed uh, even since that uh, loss to Inter Milan. They, they still have their way of playing and their way. The, the fans want it. The fans demand it. 
as soon as uh, there was a period where they had Tito Martinez, um, Argentinian coach, he came in there and the fans wanted him out straight away because they didn't recognise his way of playing as a Barcelona way. And what was the, from the time you spent there, what was the most interesting observation you picked up from, uh, so from, from, from my point of view, it seems like another world. Having played in that country and played at the highest level, what is it like having a look at what they do in, uh, in that inner sanctum? You know, it was interesting because um, I was sat on the sideline watching the, the trainings and um, Luis Enrique very rarely got involved. Uh, he was more his assistant coaches that uh, were, were coaching and, and doing the sessions. Everything was with the ball, um, you know, as you expect at Barcelona. A lot of the stuff is uh, similar to our trainings, what we would do here, what we've actually gone through our licenses, Bridgie. It's, it's not completely different. It's just that they're a lot better, the players that he's coaching. But um, I asked the reason why he wasn't um, actually coaching as much and stepping in, you know, to the session. And um, the response was that uh, he had to be careful because he had a bit of a run-in with uh, Messi early on in his, his coaching career. So he, Luis Enrique is a type of uh, person that we, um, he's pretty strong. His character is a very strong character. So he wasn't going to back down but he had to actually take a step back so he didn't put himself in that situation again because you lose Lionel Messi, you're losing the best player in the world, and then your job is virtually gone. Um, try and get the best out of Messi, and, uh, and his way to get the best out of him was to actually structure the team, yes, but during training, just take a step back because the emotions are high, Bridget. You know what it's like. You're playing a five-a-side. If you don't get the, you know, a decision go your way, you're, you're getting angry. Now, if a coach steps in and says something, sometimes you're not even thinking that it's the coach. You're, just, you're still angry. And yeah. so I noticed that uh, that happened quite a bit. The intensity of their training was ridiculous. You know, everyone talks about Messi walking around. He was the hardest working player in training. Yeah. It, 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 it surprised me so much. I'm busy watching The Last Dance on Netflix, the Jordan documentary, yeah, and if there's anything brilliant. that reiterates what you're saying, it is do not upset the main man because it can impact your job and the whole club. So there you go. And, yep. and you know what, Bridget, it, uh, it's, it's funny because there's certain players that you could probably do that with, that even though they're the main men, you can actually step in. But yeah. obviously there's, like, say, Jordan, because he was so good, but plus he understood the game. You know, he, he, he was virtually a coach out there for Phil Jackson. And, and yeah. it's the same with, uh, you know, the likes of Messi and that. They're winners. They want to win. They're not there for themselves. They're, they're there for the team. Um, <clears throat> and, and you saw that with uh, Jordan when, um, you know, they changed to the triangle system. He was yeah. a little bit, oh, you know, how's this going to affect me? But they convinced him this was going to win him a championship. And it, that was it. He, he was all in. And it's the same and with how, you, it's like how you sell that product to your players to get the buy-in. Yep. What's about yeah. And it comes down to coaching. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when you said there was someone else running the session that wasn't Enrique, it wasn't Messi though, was it? He was actually... No. It, no. It, <laughs> no it, it, was, it was the coaches. So my, uh, the reason why I was allowed to go into that inner sanctum was because uh, one of my ex-teammates was the assistant coach. So he was taking most of the sessions. Um, and uh, he said, look, Luis Enrique still takes the team talks. He still sets the, you know, the rules and the, uh, and the guidelines. And, you know, he, he, it's, it's him that actually, uh, you know, uh, organises everything. But he just didn't want to step in too much during the training because if he did, it, it could cause some issues. Occasionally he would. But if it was a possession game, he will just be sitting oh, there watching. John, there is nothing worse than a stop-start session. Yeah. Exactly. Nothing exactly. worse as a player when you get a coach coming in to say, oh, stop, stop, stop. And especially in a, pos a possession or positioning game where he's going, oh, you, you know, you could have taken a touch off your right here and then played that. And can you move you're like that? Oh, when it happens three or four times or it happens 10 times, that's it. You've lost the manager. You're like, please do me a favour. Yeah, it, it, it was great because on the, so you know you're so excited about watching Messi close up and watching in training because always players uh, what they can do in training you know is is probably just as much uh, or if not more than they do in a game. Um, but uh, what was interesting for me was watching uh, Iniesta and Neymar their combination. They, they it looked like that they just knew where they 
you know, they just had that telepathic understanding of, you know, playing balls around the corner because they were both playing on that left side. Neymar was a team player, real team player in terms of that training that I was watching. And, and then you had Suarez that was just an animal in training, kicking people. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. Like he, he, he two-footed and then Mascarano two-footed someone as well. And I'm just going, this is going to get nasty. But they just got on with it. So just last thing before we wrap up, John, um, what was the biggest takeaway you took out of that experience? Um, you got a good ton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's lasted. It was actually cold when I went there. Oh, the, no, the experience that I took away was, um, yeah, I think it's more how you actually um, coach big stars and 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 uh, and I wouldn't say egos. I would say uh, characters. You know, how how do you manage those characters? And you know, like Bridgie said, with the, the last dance is a perfect example. They need guidance. All players need guidance. Uh, all players need structure in their life, in in their training sessions, in their in the games. But I think the biggest thing is to understand each individual is a bit different. And um, and I, I remember uh, going to the game and, and going into the players' lounge. And normally, Bridgie, at a club like that, you think everyone's going to turn up in their club suit and they're going to be, you know, um, all, all part of the same team. You know, they're all dressed in their own gear. Uh, Neymar's got his cap on virtually sideways with earrings. And, uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> one of the, his jean legs was rolled up. The other one's rolled down. And, and, and I said to the assistant coach, I go, how come the players are allowed to come in whatever gear they want? And he said, you have to allow them that little bit of freedom because if you don't, he goes, then they're not going to express themselves as much as they would normally. You can't, you know, there's certain things that we're going to win with and there's certain things you have to let go. So, you know, yeah, uh, come on time, make sure that, you know, uh, you're doing those right things there. But then there's other things you have to give them that bit of freedom. And that, that I took that away. I thought that was a big thing. Interesting. Beautiful stuff. What a great experience. Um, boys, I've got to let you go because Bridges Bridges off to his next uh, roll call appointment. <laughs> off to America. <laughs> off to America. In, during the during lockdown, off to America. <laughs> uh, thanks, gents. Thank you so much. Passing time during this period has been just brilliant talking to you all um, every single week and, and just talking about different things all the time. So absolutely edible once again. Thank Thanks you very much, Dave. See you every night this week on the trivia, John. Right. I am coming for you, mate. I'm yeah. going to do you. Yeah. You, you know what, one. Richie? I don't mind you're winning. I'm actually feeling really sorry for Swartzy. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure whether he's, um, he's down about not winning. It seems that way. I think that um, we might have to let him win once. Well, I, I think what he's upset with, I've worked it out. You know, he's got a, he's got a podcast called Two Sharp Reds. We've got the Gagan pod. Our numbers are sewn past it, and he's, just, he's just really upset. He's really upset. Ollie spent the first five minutes of the last two shot reds telling Schwartzy how impressed he is with his trivia performance. I was like, I had the violin out listening to it, saying, "What's going on? What's he watching?" You know why he's quick to complain about um, you know us talking about the, something in my career or in Bridges' career and whatever. We've been talking about goalkeepers for the last three nights, and he's still not winning. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Gents, thanks so much. Take care and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Steve. thanks for you. And to everyone else out there as ever, well, I normally say enjoy your football. We can't do that, but stay safe, look after yourselves, and we'll do it all again next week. Cheers. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.